0: Romans chapter 16, beginning in verse 21, Paul writes Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my countrymen, greet you. I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, my host, and the host of the whole church, Greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Quartus, a brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Now, to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now has been made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures has been made known to all the nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God, for obedience to the faith, to God alone, wise be glory through Jesus Christ, forever. Amen. We come to the end of our study. And of course, we've only scratched the surface. We've picked up glowing nuggets from the gospel gold. And this, of course, the book of Romans, one of God's richest minds Perhaps the key verse in the whole book has been chapter 5, verse 1, where Paul wrote, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Romans has told us about how to have peace with God in chapter 5, verse 1 access to God in chapter 5 verse 2 assurance from God chapter 5 verse 3 and 4 and so we might think about this about it this way the rebellion is gone we have a way to come to God and we have a way to stay with God Paul has taken us on a journey into God's holiness as he condemned sin in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, God's grace in justifying sinners, chapter 3, chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, into God's power in sanctifying believers, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, into God's sovereignty who in his heart and in his profound wisdom will save both Jews And Gentiles in chapter 9, 10, and 11. And then Paul invites former slaves to sin to become slaves to God. And somebody might react and respond by saying, I'm I'm not going to be anybody's slave, oh foolish one. You are a slave to the thing that you serve, to the thing that occupies you and preoccupies you. Paul is a man of faith, but he is also a man who friendship is important, and so he invites us to consider what it means to have friendship and association in our mutual ministries in Christ. We all need friends. We need ministry partners who are faithful to the gospel and faithful to Christ, and perhaps, perhaps you might be in a place Where the hassle and the accountability of friendship and fellowship. Seems way more like a burden than than like a blessing. But Paul invites us to bear the burden. So that we can experience blessing. In the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul concludes this amazing book. With greetings. Greetings. And grace and praise. Let's look in verse 21. Greetings from the gang. He writes, Timothy, my fellow worker and Lucius, Jason and Socipiter, my countrymen, greet you. Paul sends greetings to the people who are at Rome from his companions in ministry. Timothy, of course, Paul's right-hand man. And clearly there's enough information in the New Testament about Timothy to provide an entire study, but I'm going to give you the short version. His name, Timos, Theos, Timo Theo, means the one who honors God. I've told you over and over again the meaning of my name: Geno, the cattle have all died. No, you understand. That in the first century, names had meaning. Not so much anymore. (laughs) Timothy's mother and grandmother were both believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it would appear that this Timothy, of course, is the Timothy to whom Paul wrote two letters. First and second Timothy. He was born to a Jewish mother and a Gentile father. It would appear that both his mother and his grandmother dedicated him to the service of the Lord. And this should cause each and every parent to pause for just a moment. To understand that Timothy was called and used by God in ministry. By the prayerful examples of believing family members. Just like you. Some of you had the privilege of having a God-honoring mom and a God-honoring dad. And because you had a God-honoring mom and a God-honoring dad who loved you and ministered to you and prayed with you and encouraged you over and over and over again. God was able to use you in ministry. Timothy is called my fellow worker, which puts him on an equal footing with his mentor, Paul the Apostle. Paul makes an interesting statement about Timothy in Philippians chapter 2, verse 20, where in writing to the Philippians, in sending Timothy, he says, For I have no one, I have no one, I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. And so Paul and Timothy were like-minded. They shared common ministry goals. They shared a common ministry distinctive and perceptive. Uh, they were like-minded in philosophy and theology and concerns and plans. And you never realize how like-mindedness, how important like-mindedness is until you don't have it. And so Paul writes and, and he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, For this reason I've sent Timothy to you, who's my beloved and my faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Paul didn't have a separate ministry for the church at Corinth or Philippi or Antioch. Whether he was in Rome or whether he was in Turkey, he had the same message, the same philosophy of ministry, the same arguments, the same encouragements. And then Paul mentions Lucius and Jason and Sosipater. They're called kinsmen or relatives. And remember in the New Testament, this can either mean a close relative, meaning a blood relative. Or it can mean that they were members of the same tribe of Benjamin, perhaps. Minimum, it means that they were countrymen in the sense that they're all Jewish people. They are Jewish people. So Paul is ministering, serving side by side with Jew and Gentile. Remember, his message is Jew and Gentile have been united. So he doesn't just simply speak the message. He models the message in his ministry. If Jew and Gentile have been united, then guess what? Let's be united in our common commitment to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Lucius may have been from Cyrene, which is North Africa. We have no proof that the Jason mentioned here is the same Jason that's mentioned in the book of Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 19. But those of you familiar with the story, when Paul makes his way to Ephesus, he runs into a profound bit of problems. And the the religious leaders basically surround a person named Jason and they take him and they beat him. It could be the same one, but we have no proof. In verse 22 he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this epistle, greet you in the Lord. Paul had an amanuasis. An amanuasis is just a big word that means secretary. The amanuasis is a person who would take a letter When you dictated the letter. And so here we have an insight into the composition of this letter. And how it actually is formed. Paul is communicating. He's basically saying, I need you to write this down, Tertius. And then Tertius writes it down. Tertius served as Paul's scribe, taking dictation. Now remember in the ancient world of the first century of Rome. There was a fairly large slave population. And slave populations always didn't always get a regular name. Sometimes they would be named Primus, that means one. Segundus, that means number two. Tertius, that means number three. Quartus, that means number four. Can you imagine you're in a household and they go, Well, what are you gonna call these people? I'm gonna call him number one and her number two, and him number three, and her number four. And that was their name. And his name is number three. I number three. Write this epistle. And we may think of Paul, like I said, his monumental ministry, his evident impact on the early church, but we might be tempted to forget that faithful, humble believers make Paul's ministry possible. The big question we should ask the text is twofold. Did Tertius say to Paul, hey, Paul, since we're writing to the Romans, can I just insert my own greeting? And Paul may have said, sure. Or is it possible that Tertius slips himself into the divine narrative? (laughs) Is it possible that that Tertius, sensing the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, as this amazing book is unfolding, he's going to go, I want my name here so that people will read about me for thousands of years into the future. We don't know. But here's what we do know. That Tertius does slip himself into the divine message. And you know how he does it? By serving. By ministering. I think that that's how you get inserted into the divine narrative. You get inserted the moment that you make the choice and you say, I'm going to pray and I'm going to minister and I'm going to serve and I'm going to love people for Jesus' sake. We have at our church a small but dedicated group of men and women that make ministry possible. My wife Mary, who serves with joy and patience and faithfulness. All of our staff, all of our volunteers, every single one of you who are dedicated to the mission and ministry. Whether it's at the Denver Rescue Mission or Assisted Living Centers or working in a variety of discipleship and evangelism adventures, children's ministry, student ministry, women's ministry, help, hospitality, cleaning, meals. Few things would ever get done without these faithful saints serving in practical ministry to the Lord. And I pray... Like Tertius, you step forward and you serve. There are some selfish people who might read into the text, well, couldn't Paul write his own letters? Well, yeah, I think he could. Or maybe, maybe he could only with great difficulty. Maybe the pain and the torture the multiple beatings and imprisonment had left a lasting situation in his life where he might have had some vision problems. Or maybe even controlling his ability to write with his own hand. And in order to get the divine narrative, someone says, you speak, I'll write. Isn't that interesting? We're given ever so subtle hints About Tertius. Even his name. I'm number three. He says. I greet you in the Lord. He knows and he loves. The Lord. He shares his testimony. And of course. Like I indicated earlier. Behind almost every effective minister in ministry. Is an army of effective ministers. Praying. Cleaning. Cleaning. Answering phones, writing messages, doing research, providing support. One of the things that people often ask me, well, how how do you do it? How do I do what? How, How do you do what you do? I teach a Bible study in Longmont on Saturdays. And we have ministry here on Sundays and Wednesdays. I have a daily radio program. Every single day, Monday through Friday, I I have the privilege of serving as a chaplain with the FBI and and with the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Department and the Denver Police Department and multiple police departments. And I, I have the privilege of being able to respond to critical incidents. But when people ask me the question, how do you do it? The simple answer is I have a dedicated, selfless wife who works harder than anyone I know who rarely makes demands, and when she does, she deserves whatever it is she's asking for. Yeah, you can clap. There's a faithful army of men and women who shoulder the burden, who provide the spiritual, physical support, the people who are praying Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. What's interesting to me is sometimes we have this odd way of ranking our own work. We think of the task at hand as something large or something small, something important, something unimportant, something critical or non-critical, essential or non-essential, valuable or not valuable. But Paul understands that all work done for Jesus and the gospel is valuable, eternal, No work or service done in Jesus' name is inconsequential. We rank work and labor, but God ranks obedience and faithfulness in the ministry that you've been called to. God has entrusted you with a gift, and you will be faithful to that gift, and you will be obedient to that gift, or you will not be faithful, and you will not be obedient. Luke 16.10, Jesus says, He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much, and he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. And so you've been entrusted with a holy charge. And in verse 23, it says, Gaius my host, and the host of the whole church, greets you. Gaius is a name that is a Latin name, almost certainly a Roman name. The previous emperor was named Gaius Julius Caesar. Another emperor was named Gaius Claudius Caesar. Another emperor Gaius, Claudius was also called Caligula. Gaius was the family name, almost certainly a Roman name. And apparently he serves as the host for the church. Remember, they don't have a church. They don't don't have a big building on, on the main street of Corinth. They're gathering in homes. I'm amazed at Paul's ability To sum up a person in a single sentence. Gaius, the man with the gift of hospitality. Erastus, the treasurer of the city. And by the way... In the two or three times that I've been to Corinth, I've been able to go down the main street where there is a gigantic table where judgment was made. And during the excavations at Corinth, in their little museum there, there's one piece of marble that has inscribed from almost 2,000 years ago, dedicated by Erastus, the city treasurer. This Erastus, this one. Why do you suppose that's important? Because when the Bible speaks, there is not just sometimes an archaeological record, but the reality is that there are deep connections that connect us back to the the text. What do we think? Well, why do you suppose Erastus is the treasurer of the city? Let me just ask you a blunt question. Who do you entrust with your money? Hopefully you entrust the person who you trust the most. That's the person who gets charge of the money. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul mentions a Gaius who was baptized by Paul. Remember, he says, Hey, look... Um, I don't know whether or not I baptized any of you except for Gaius, and I think I might have baptized a few more. But then he goes on and he says, because the Lord hasn't, hasn't called me to baptize, but rather to preach the gospel. And this would have been a wonderful opportunity to say, and the gospel is what I'm saying to you and this act of baptism. Acts 20, 19, 29 mentions a Gaius who served as a traveling companion in Macedonia. Acts 20, verse 4 mentions another Gaius from Derby. In 3 John, John speaks of the well-beloved Gaius whom I love in the truth. Whoever they are and however they served and whatever ministry support that they provided, I suspect that one day your life and my life might be summed up in a single sentence. Do you remember the old commercial? What do you want on your tombstone? What do you want to be put on your tombstone? William Carey, the the great missionary, said, I am a worm, and less than a worm. I want you to put on my tombstone. I now rest in the everlasting arms of my Savior. In Tombstone, Arizona, at Boot Hill, there's a gravestone marker. It reads, Pause, my friend, as you walk by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friend, to follow me. And when Mary and I went to Tombstone, I said, we should put something else at the bottom of that. To follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. (laughs) Here's another favorite at Boot Hill. Here lies George Johnson, hanged by mistake, 1882. Here's what it says on his tombstone. He was right. We was wrong. But we strung him up and now he's gone. <laughs> yeah. so that's, that's a little rough, isn't it? Can you imagine that's the sum and the substance of your life on your tombstone? They, they, they write, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. And the world of the Wild West may have seemed harsh and nonsensical and and maybe cruel, but the same is true of the ancient world. We live in a fallen world. You know, I read the most recent United States census failed to count some six million people. Six million people were left out of the count? How does that happen? How do so many wind up missing? And the reason why I thought about that, because I thought about the song that we rarely sing anymore. You remember the song, when the roll is called up yonder, when the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. And guess what? I I think that the roll is going to be called up yonder, and some of us might be found missing because we're not being counted in the life of the church and in the life of the ministry. I read a survey taken in a suburban area of Houston. The pollster wanted to find out what motivated people to choose a particular church, and there were several surprises. 12% chose their church because of a prior denominational affiliation, 8% on the basis of architectural beauty. In other words, they went to the church because of the way it looked. 3% because of the pastor. Ouch. 18% because... It was convenient, 21%, because people in the congregation were going there who they admired or or who they respected. But the largest amount, the single largest, greatest factor, 37%, were influenced by the fact that friends and neighbors took an interest in them and invited them. I was amazed. According to the survey, the most effective way to get people to go to church is to invite them. It's that simple. You ask them. I know the single most effective way to get a person to leave the church. Ignore them. Forget about them. Isolate them. Treat them with disrespect. Forget to ask about how they're doing. Paul may have been the single greatest Christian intellect of his time. But he had a heart that burned for the glory of God and the testimony of Jesus and the gospel of grace. And he loved people. Ken Hughes writes, quote, The truly revolutionary heart is not just a visionary heart. With great dreams. But a heart that loves people. A heart that remembers names. A heart with a good word for its brothers and sisters. A protective heart. And finally a contagious heart. Unquote. And so he goes. From greetings. To grace. Look at verse 24. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Be with you all amen. Some manuscripts completely omit verse 24. The verse is a repeat of verse 20. Go back to verse 20. Read the end of the verse. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Here in verse 24, Paul adds the word all. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And it could very well be that Paul may have written this verse in his own hand. Paul repeats the benediction in every book that he writes. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 17 and 18. The salutation of Paul with my own hand which is a sign in every epistle. So I write the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. It seems impossible to overestimate the power, the need for God's all sufficient grace. William Newell, in his commentary on Romans, writes Grace is God acting freely according to his own nature as love, with no promises or obligations to fulfill, and acting, of course, righteously in view of the cross. Grace there is uncaused in the recipient. Its cause lies wholly in the giver, in God. Grace is sovereign, not having debts to pay or fulfilled conditions on man's part to wait for. It can act toward whom and how it pleases. It can and does and often places the worst deservers in the highest favor. And if you're ever wondering why you got to be who you are and and why God was so gracious to you and so merciful to you and so wonderful to you, it lies completely in the Lord himself. Newell goes on and describes a section that he entitles things which every gracious soul discovers. Number one, to hope to be better. Is to fail to see yourself completely in Christ. To hope to be better is to fail to see yourself wholly in Christ. When you wake up and you go, I just wish I would. I won't speak for you. I'll I'll speak for me. I won't talk about your nighttime or morning time conversations. I'll talk about mine. Lord, I wish I would stop being a jerk. Lord, I wish I would stop being such a stupid, idiot, selfish, self-absorbed person. The truth, all of that's true. But the Lord says, I see you in Christ. Holy, blameless, forgiven, Newell writes, number two, to be disappointed with yourself is to have believed in yourself. Ouch. To be disappointed with yourself is to have believed in yourself. Number three, to be discouraged is unbelief as to God's purpose and plan of blessing for you. Number four, to be proud is to be blind. For we have no standing before God in ourselves. And number five, the lack of divine blessing therefore comes from unbelief and not from failure of devotion. And number six, he writes, real devotion to God arises not from man's will to show it, but from the discovery that blessings have been received from God while we were yet unworthy and undevoted. And number seven, to preach devotion first and blessing second is to reverse God's order and preach law, not grace. The law made man's blessing depend on devotion. Grace confers undeserved, unconditional blessing. Our devotion may fall. Follow, but not always so, in proper measure, unquote. We have grace first. What if I told you we had grace second and third as well? It's grace piled up on top of grace. Robert Farrar Capon, in his book Between Noon and Three, writes, Some people are truly fearful of grace. They complain that grace may lead to license or that the freedom to do all kinds of terrible, sinful things and abuse grace. Jesus apparently was not afraid of grace. He wasn't afraid of giving the prodigal son a kiss instead of a lecture, a party instead of probation. And he proved that by bringing in the elder brother at the end of the story and having him raise pretty much the same objections to those who are fearful and skeptical of grace. The elder brother is angry about the party. He complains that his father is lowering standards and ignoring virtue, that music and dancing and fatted calves are in effect just so many permissions to break the law. And to that, Jesus has the father say only one thing, cut it out. We're not playing good boys versus bad boys anymore. Your brother was dead. And now he's alive. The name of the game from now on is resurrection. Not bookkeeping, unquote. I like that. The name of the game now is life from the dead. And so there's greetings, grace, and look, praise from Paul. Verse 25, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. Paul ends his beautiful, beautiful letter with this amazing and impressive doxology. Doxology, doxos means praise. Praise. And some of you grew up maybe in a religious tradition where you would sing the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, or as Pastor Chuck used to sing, praise him all creatures here below. (laughs) Paul praises the Lord. And what's interesting about the doxology is that Paul's praise can in many ways serve as the model For our praise. Paul praises the work of God in verses 25 and 26. And then he praises the wisdom of God in verse 27. Roy Lauren called this the doxology of desire. And I thought, how beautiful. In what sense? In what sense is it the doxology of desire? In the sense that it consists of praise to God. Praise that God will establish the believer in a secure relationship in Christ. Think about what Paul is doing. He's praising the Lord, but as he's praising the Lord, he's praising the Lord that the Lord himself will secure the men and women in Rome, that the Lord himself will connect them to him. Paul sees no advantage for weak and wishy-washy saints. He sees no advantage for the saint who will nullify his or her testimony in Christ by by doing stuff that's dishonoring to God. And so in verse 25, when it says, Now to him who is able to establish you. I want to draw your attention to that word establish. It's the Greek word sterizo. The root of that word means to prop, to buttress, to reinforce. We would use it in the sense to build a wall or to make an embankment. When the Mississippi River used to run over, they would build levees. They would reinforce the embankment. The same word is used in 1 Thessalonians 3.13, which says that God is able to establish our hearts, blameless in holiness. Paul reminds the reader that God is able to make us strong and steadfast to him who is able to establish you. Paul wants to remind the Romans that this isn't you making yourself better. This isn't you being the perfect person that you should be, but rather Paul is reminding the reader that God is able to make us strong and steadfast and reinforce and prop us up so that we won't fall. In the beginning of Paul's letter in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he said, Making request, if by some means now at last I might find a way in the will of God to come to you, for I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift so that you you may be established, same word, established, reinforced, propped up. We sometimes support each other. We sing the song, lean on me. And we look to each other for temporary sources of support. But in the end, The person supporting you needs to be supported. When I met with the FBI, the the director gave a charge to the special agents about the profound task of protecting our nation. And reminding them that it was a noble cause, a worthy cause. That our freedom, our security, our safety matters. That their holy task, if you will, of protecting citizens is a valuable thing. And then he said to me, Chaplain, you're tasked with the job of protecting the people who protect this country. And I thought, I can't protect the people who protect this country unless someone's protecting me. And that I can impart to them something way more powerful and way more meaningful than me. We live in a world where people want a life coach instead of a pastor. They want a plan for personal success instead of forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with God. Paul points people to the Lord and the gospel and the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. And some have argued that is Paul's gospel different from the gospel of Jesus? And Paul would be the first to tell you that there aren't two or three gospels. There's one singular gospel. This is the gospel that was declared And offered by Jesus, that is in fact preached by Paul. Paul understands that it is Jesus making the offer of help, salvation, forgiveness, and hope, and that people have to respond. And what is the mystery that's been kept secret since the world began? I suspect that Paul is making reference to the true church of Jesus Christ. Remember, a mystery was something often unknown in the past that would eventually be revealed and God reveals to Paul that the church of Jesus Christ would consist of both Jew and Gentile. God was going to forgive the Jews and God was going to forgive the Gentiles and he was going to unite them together in one new man. The credibility of Paul's message speaks to the intimacy of the fact that Paul understood this. The third chapter of Ephesians examines and expands that theme. Wiersbe writes, quote, It was because of this message, it was because of this message, that the Judaizers persecuted Paul because they wanted to maintain Jewish privileges. Both Jews and Gentiles in the Roman churches needed to know what God's program was. And some of that is explained in chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 of the book of Romans. The bottom line though, if there is a gospel apart from grace, and if there is a gospel apart from Christ, and if there is a gospel where you do your very best to make God happy, it isn't the gospel that Paul preaches because Paul's preaching says, No matter what you do, no matter how good you try to be, it's never going to be good enough for God. And so Jesus is the satisfying solution. And so, there are at least five things that we should never forget about the gospel. Number one, the Lord God is able to establish us or make us stand firm in the hope of Christ. Number two, the Lord Jesus offers the gospel. Paul preaches the gospel. Jesus offers the gospel. How does he do that? Remember? Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Come to me, Jesus says. Come to me. He tells the religious leaders in John 8, unless you believe that I am who I say that I am, you will likewise perish in your sin. Jesus says, come to me. Trust me. Come to me. Remember Jesus says in John 11, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. The Lord Jesus offers the gospel. And Paul preached that gospel. Number three, the gospel is where all humanity finds hope. The reason why we know that. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret, but now has been made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures. What's the prophetic scriptures that he's making reference to? It can't be the Old Testament because the Old Testament concealed the fact that Jew and Gentile would be united together. I think that the prophetic scriptures that he's here speaking about is the very words he's writing at that very moment and the entire epistle that he's just given to them. He's talking about the New Testament testimony found in the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. He's talking about the United Testament, to testimony of, as the close companions of Christ bring to bear the record of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he says, the scriptures that have been made known to all nations. The gospel is where humanity finds its hopes. Look what it says. To all nations. To the people living in North America, our Native American friends. To the people living in South America. To the people living in Europe and Central Asia to the people living in the northern part of Africa and the southern part of Africa, to the people living in the Middle East, the gospel the gospel is where humanity finds hope. The gospel, number four, is meant for all people. And it was always meant for all people. And number five, the gospel requires a response in faith. Look what it says. According to the commandment of the everlasting God, For obedience to the faith. Paul invites a response. That people won't just simply hear this message, but they'll respond to the message by saying, I'm going to give my life to Jesus. I'm going to turn from my sin. I'm going to accept Christ as my Savior. And in verse 27, he says to God, alone, wise is it true is God singularly alone wise there are men and women who are very very wise But whatever human wisdom exists or even whatever wisdom is adopted when we wonderfully, prayerfully, and rightly acknowledge that there is such a thing as wisdom and that God is the source of wisdom in comparison to what minuscule amounts of wisdom we may possess, God alone is wise. When we look at the treasury of the wisdom that's found in God and we look at the paucity or the poverty of what we have, it's like we have nothing. And so the Lord alone is the source of true and pure wisdom. To him alone belongs honor and glory through Jesus, our eternal mediator. Look what it says, to God alone wise, be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Think about that. It isn't just praise to God forever, who is wise alone forever, who experiences glory, which is the sum and substance of his attributes forever, but it's through Jesus Christ forever. Why? Now we understand what the writer in the New Testament says when he says Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, forever, an unchanging Lord. Just a few things before we close. If God has revealed how we're to be right with him through faith in Jesus, how we have peace and access. An assurance. You would have to wonder what is it, what is it, what is it, what is it about human beings when they have their own ideas and their own thoughts and their own opinions and their own suggestions about what it means to have a right relationship with God? What is it, what is it, what is it about people that they insist that what the Bible says is probably not true or what Jesus says is not true? I was reading in the Denison Forum A headline, it said, church is not important. 51% of United States adults say, the article said, what helps you grow in your faith? The Barna Group, a Christian polling organization, asked American adults that question. They listed prayer, family, friends, reading the Bible, even having children, but going to church. Didn't even crack the top 10 list. Is going to church the do all, be all, end all? No. But for a culture that is drifting away from God and drifting away from the gospel, also is drifting away from fellowship. Remember what I said you can't have unity all by yourself. Since God has revealed the gospel in the scriptures, why don't people rush to church and to Bible study? It seems to me that in a world where people are starved for hope, you would think that they would be lining up outside of the building desperate for hope, desperate for forgiveness. Why don't people search the scriptures daily so they can not only know the truth but walk in the truth? You know, an unsaved man who was talking with an evangelist about how to be saved was deeply convicted over his sin. And when he asked the Christian what he needed to do to be saved, the Christian said, it's too late. And the man panicked. He said, what do you mean it's too late? You mean it's too late for me to be saved? And the man laughed and he said, no, no, I just mean it's, you're too late to do anything for yourself. You're too late. Jesus has already done everything. He's already come and lived the perfect life that you could never live. He's already died on the cross as the satisfying solution to the problem of your sin. He's already risen from the dead making sure that the offer that he makes you can actually experience. Christ has done it all. Years ago, Billy Graham was preaching in Scotland. And some local reporters were poking fun at who they were calling Preacher Graham. An older man said, He's saying we're all sinners. I do not think it's hard to believe that. And he's saying that Christ died for us. And the moment that those words came out of his mouth and he's saying that Christ died for us. He said that his heart was convicted and that he realized that he needed a savior. And right there on the spot, the elderly Scotsman knelt on the grass and cried out to God to save him. You don't have to come to church to pray that prayer. But a lot of people have prayed that prayer in a church. But whether in church or out of church, the most important thing isn't just simply praying the prayer. It's meaning it. Wanting your life changed so that you have peace and access and assurance. That's what Paul wanted. That's the takeaway that he wanted each and every one of us to have at the end of the book. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, there's so many people living a life of turmoil. The exact opposite of peace. They're living a life of blockage. Estrangement. The unsettling that takes place when people wonderful uh, wonder whether or not The world is absurd or reasonable and meaningful. And for the people who come to know Jesus and love Jesus, who pray that simple prayer of faith of trusting Jesus as Lord and Savior, that they have the assurance that God will keep his promise, forgive sin and give us eternal life. What more could we ask for? What more do we need? And so, again, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, each and every person within the sound of my voice would make the decision to cry out to God, to confess sin, confess the need of a Savior, and that Jesus is that Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's.